It's WKXL in the morning. I'm your host, AJ Kirsted. Be sure to tune in to the show weekdays from 6 to 8 a.m. right here on WKXL 1450 a.m. 103.9 FM Concord. If you happen to be traveling up and down Interstate 93 or going through Manchester or Merrimack and such, you can now tune into the station also at 101.9 FM. We're happy to be broadcasting down there, too. But sticking with Concord for today, we're speaking with Ethan DeWitt of the New Hampshire Bulletin. They join the show every week. Welcome back to the station. Glad to be back. So NewHampshireBulletin.com to get more of what we're, we're uh, talking about today. But you've actually been on break. So we're talking about things that will be uh, appearing on the site today as we broadcast or as uh, early next week. So be sure to check out NewHampshireBulletin.com to get the uh, articles because they probably won't be on the on-demand version today for the first time since we started doing these. But let's start off with a uh, brand new lawsuit, lawsuit that was uh, filed this week by Andrew Valinsky, a very well-known political player in the state for the Democrats, John. Tobin, whose name I've definitely heard before with regards to education and such and some other players, looking to dismantle the swept tax and uh, the way it ties into this Claremont 3 lawsuit that has historically been brought up in the state. But let's start off with the swept tax. What does that refer to? Sure. So the swept tax, if you're a property owner in the state, um, you may have seen it before. It's the statewide education property tax. And essentially, it is a state-required tax that is implemented by your town or city. And it's on top of your local property taxes. It is an additional property tax. And the way that it works is that across the state, the all towns and cities have to raise $363 million every year collectively towards this tax. Now, the Department of Revenue Administration here in the state figures out if we need to raise $363 million every year um, based on how many houses uh, we have and how much they're valued at, what the total valuation of all the houses in the state are, we will set a rate for every property owner to pay. It doesn't matter what town you live in, it'll be a standard rate that you pay on top of your local property tax. And then that together, if we get our math right, should equal $363 million. The weird thing about this tax is you pay it when you pay your property taxes, but it doesn't, it, it's called a state tax, but it doesn't actually leave your town. It doesn't go to the state. It stays within your town. Um, and it, then it's used towards um, your local school district. And the, the idea of it is it has a long history. Um, it was created in 1999, but it's meant to create sort of a requirement that there be a, kind of a standardized tax that goes towards local school districts. Um, but it's now the subject of a lawsuit because uh, the plaintiffs in this lawsuit say that while it was billed or was sold as a way to have equal property taxes, the actual effect is not equal property taxes. And we can talk about that in a little bit. But yes, it's, it's been around since 1999. And if you know about the Claremont decisions of the 90s, it is the state's primary response to those lawsuits is one of the big things that came out of those lawsuits. And what the plaintiffs are arguing today, two of whom were involved in those lawsuits in the 90s, who didn't see the state, is that you know, 21, 22 odd years later, this system is not the answer. It doesn't go far enough to make school funding equal. And so it's their latest effort. Which is very apparent. And this is ultimately a problem across the United States of America because 
it, it, it oftentimes is someone who I'm actually broadcasting for Maine today as I'm, as I'm recording this, uh, like Maine's very much the same way where there's huge disparities from school district, school district with regards to what facilities are available, what sort of resources are available. Concord school district is awful, is able to offer resources like partnerships with tech and things like that. But some other more rural schools up in the County and such cost County won't be able to necessarily have that same accessibility either because of, of direct funding or other local resources. I'm assuming this kind of all plays into this conflict. Yeah, so I'm just gonna set the scene. This same group of plaintiffs earlier this year filed a much broader lawsuit that is kind of going after the entire way that the state funds education. And they're claiming that this is unfair to taxpayers. Um, and so there, you may have heard of the Conval lawsuit if you've been following any of this. Um, that was filed in 2019. That is a lawsuit brought by school districts. And it's arguing that, hey, this unequal way of, that we fund uh, public schools in which um, somebody in a wealthy town with wealthy homes and wealthy properties um, pays a lot less proportionally in taxes than somebody in a poorer town, um, that this process uh, creates hardships for school districts. So there was a lawsuit two years ago that was thought to be the, the Claremont Three or you know the, the next lawsuit about uh, school funding uh, after the 90s. That was filed again by the Conval Law um, School District in 2019. Then this year in 2022, um, we have a new lawsuit from Andy Vilinsky and John Tobin. They're not involved in the other lawsuit, but they're involved in this new lawsuit and they're taking the taxpayer angle. And they're saying that um, this is it's not just unfair for the schools who have to often scramble if they're in property poor districts to just get classrooms open, teachers uh, paid, et cetera. But it's also unfair to the taxpayers who live in towns when if they lived 20 miles or five miles over the town line, they may pay totally different rates for public education. So they're making this argument from the, the taxpayer perspective. What happened this week is they filed that lawsuit back in June. Uh, and this week they are making a specific request for an injunction against the SWEP tax. And we just explained what the SWEP tax is. It's one piece of how the schools are funded in New Hampshire. There's a lot more to it than that. But this particular motion that was filed this week is a request for a preliminary injunction. The reason that's significant is that they, like I said, they filed their broader lawsuit in June. That has a trial date of next August. So there's going to be a lot that is going to happen before then. There'll be motions, there'll be discovery, et cetera, um, before that actually gets into a courtroom. A preliminary injunction for this new motion this week is a much faster process because what you're essentially asking the court to, to do is you're asking for a, a quick um, decision on whether to block whatever the plaintiffs want. In this case, they want to block the swept tax from going into effect next year. So it's a really big ask. When you think about it, they're blocking an entire, they're trying to block an entire tax, $363 million of the tax. And they're trying to get a court to say that to the Department of Revenue Administration, you cannot uh, collect this or, or require this tax. Um, and so it's a kind of a tall order, but that's the context. It's part of a bigger lawsuit, but it's kind of a side action that they're taking this week. It seems like there's many angles of looking at this where it seems like these, these, uh, I know for sure Volinsky is, is very liberal in his political innings and I'm pretty sure Tobin is too. I'm not, super quick. Can you, who's, who's John Tobin? 
Um, I, John Tobin was one of the attorneys who was in the original two Claremont decisions. And these were the decisions okay. in which the state, um, we have a constitutional requirement in our state constitution that says that you must provide an adequate education. And the Claremont decisions in the 90s essentially said the way that the state's been doing that has been unconstitutional. And the court was more explicit. Supreme Court of, the, of New Hampshire was more explicit saying, here's what an adequate education is, and the state needs to provide it. So it seems to me one of the ways that they're trying to light a fire on the existing funding system is so the the, the legislature actually comes together and comes with a, a more state level funding system to take care of all schools. Do, does that sound accurate to you? Yeah. And what happened, it's interesting. So there were, again, two Claremont um, lawsuits. The most significant one, arguably, is the second one, Claremont two, that came out in 1997, that decision. And in that decision, the New Hampshire Supreme Court said you have to fix this. The first decision was saying, yes, an adequate education needs to be provided. The second one was saying it needs to be provided and you need to do something about it. So this was during the governorship of Jean Shaheen. Um, in the immediate aftermath of that 1997 decision, the state tried a few things to try to uh, kind of make for a better system. But the problem is, is that nobody really, the, the property rich towns didn't really want to distribute their money to property poor towns and have some kind of system like that. So the first, the first couple attempts the state made back in the 90s did not include that distribution, allowed the cities and towns to keep their excess money and not have to give it to the poorer districts under this tax system. And the Supreme Court, in an advisory opinion um, in, in the 90s, said you can't do that, uh, that this is not what we said. We said in, in our decision that you the state has to provide this. You can't, um, and it has to provide it in equal ways so that all taxpayers are equal. So that happened in the 90s. So when the swept tax was originally passed in 99, it actually did have this redistribution. So when a property rich town, again, everybody gets the same tax rate. So this this year, it's about $1.40 per thousand dollars of property. So if you're in a rich town and houses are worth 500000 to a million dollars, then a dollar 40 per thousand dollars, that's going to be a lot more in dollars that go um, to, to your town than if you live in a poorer town. And that town's going to have that much more resources. So what happened is under the old version of SWEPT up until 2011, that excess money, any money that a, a town doesn't need for their school district, they maybe they rake in hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, just let's just say, and they didn't need that much. They needed 50. So all that excess can be, would have to be go in to the state and then be redistributed to the rest of the towns. Then in 2010, 2011, you have the Bill O'Brien administration. There's a lot of changes. You know, we're in a recession. Uh, there's, there's all kinds of um, political changes. That's the Tea Party year. And there was a big argument being made, not just in conservative towns, but liberal towns as well, that were wealthy, um, saying that we've become donor towns. And you may have heard this phrase, donor towns. Donor towns, this was the, the phrase that was, that was drawn up to mean towns who are rich, who have to donate some of their excess tax money to poorer towns. Of course, this was sort of at the heart of the Claremont decision, which was that everyone should be, the, the taxes should be um, kind of standardized. But the legislature back in 2011 decided to do away with that. There was a lot of political pressure to do away with it, and they did. And so since 2011, towns have been able to keep the excess money. And what that means is that some 
property poor towns, even though there's a statewide education tax, that doesn't actually go far enough to fund their own schools. They have to raise their own taxes by a lot more. It might be $16 per thousand dollars. And again, think of the statewide tax is only $1.44. Um, you know, it might, it goes all over the place. So a property poor town might need to do that. Whereas a property rich town, because they no longer have to distribute the excess, they can use that excess money they raise to offset their other taxes because they get to keep it. So they can they they create what the plaintiffs in this lawsuit call negative taxes. Effectively, the taxes are just offsets for their other taxes. And by be, by imposing the tax, they're lowering the other taxes. And so that's what they're saying is unconstitutional, that you, you can't have a district with negative taxes. That was not what the court had in mind in the 90s. So that's where this case is going. And this particular motion this week was saying that, um, you know, pointing to that negative tax issue and saying that this is what's inequitable. Super quick before we go on to the next topic here, because we're already pretty far in the uh, I mean, education freedom accounts have been getting tons of press recently and how, how much money is going into that program. Democrats aren't terribly happy with the program, generally speaking. Is that playing a role in any of the, these more recent lawsuits, do you think? Um, no, actually, they have not brought those in, I don't believe. Uh, I, it, it, they might be mentioned deep in some of the filings. In the periphery, it's, it's involved yeah. in the conversation, but it's not necessarily involved in the lawsuit. They're not. This is interesting you brought that up though, because uh, the, the vouchers, the education freedom accounts, um, they that's been obviously a political hot rod the last few years. What's weird to me that I can't figure out is this change I just told you about happened in 2011 where they got rid of donor towns. So this system for SWEPT has been like this for 11 years, right? And it's only this year that there, and this week, that there's a motion directly attacking the SWEPT tax. And I really haven't been able to get any answers as to why um, everyone waited that long if they were challenges in the 90s, immediately after these proposals came up, when they first came up, and they were they were struck down by the court. Um, so the fact it's taken 11 years for a challenge this in this time around is interesting um and we'll see how that plays out the fact that they waited it, to me it sounds like it's because it's not a sexy thing you can run on very effectively and uh it, it's so complex and involves yeah. so many different school districts it's hard to really get a solid lobbying effort if i had to guess but we'll have to wait and see what happens with the lawsuits it'll be an interesting year as that we uh follow as they go to court uh moving on to the next subject here while we have a few minutes left there's a bipartisan group of state senators looking for funding for uh for school uh school lunches for children that are part of medicaid enrollment what's going on there yeah, so there's a program um, that's run by the USDA, which uh, is in charge of school lunches. It's called the Medicaid Direct Certification Demonstration Pilot. Um, and it is uh, an, it's a program that basically says that if you are enrolled in Medicaid, you'll automatically get free and reduced price lunches if you're Kit. So um, free reduced price lunches, I believe, are available up to 185% of the federal poverty line. Um, so people who are in there are either in Medicaid expansion or in Medicaid, uh, and the state has kids' names there. So a surprisingly bipartisan group of senators, um, you know, everybody from Bob Guida, Senator Bob Guida, Senator Jeb Bradley, to Senator Cindy Rosenwald, Senator Sharon Carson, um, 
signed a letter last week that asked the Sununu administration to apply for this program. And the pitch they're making is that six to 7,000 kids in New Hampshire could qualify for free and reduced price lunches, but, but may not get them because their, par- their parents may not apply, may not know about it, or may not be interested in applying. And if we pass this program, then they would automatically get the free lunches or the reduced price lunches because the school would have their Medicaid information. Um, and so the senators last week were asking the Sununu administration to participate in this program because the deadline for participation was actually September 30th. So the deadline is now passed. Um, the Sununu administration, the governor actually wrote, a, a, he personally signed the letter back to the senators and said that he understands why they want this, but he pointed to an effort in the legislature earlier this session, earlier this year, in this last session, where there was an amendment to do exactly this, and it was voted down. And he argued that if the legislature voted this down, then I, I, it wouldn't be right for the state to go out on a limb and do it without the legislature's approval. Um, Generally and- speaking, that I can understand that rationale now if it was if we didn't already the big thing that kills me on just just to jump in on this is we have the data already i could understand yeah. the libertarian republican perspective where there's a there's a lot of them right now at the state house where they'd say we're not collecting any more damn data from these residents especially coming out of the covid pandemic but yeah. considering we have that data it, it's really confusing that sununu who's more of a, the corporate republican side of the house mm-hmm. not just saying screw this we're just going to do it I think that he would maybe be in a lot of trouble on the right if he did do it. That might be what's at play here. But Mm -hmm. I'll just to fill you in, the reason that it was voted down when this was a a legislative proposal is it comes back to New Hampshire's funding system because the way that we fund our schools, we give adequacy grants to every school from the state, but you get more grants the more kids you have in the school who are freer, reduced price lunch kids, you get an additional addendum per student for every kid who gets free and reduced price lunch kid. So one one of the arguments against it was a budgetary argument saying if we pass, if more kids in New Hampshire get free and reduced price lunches, that means more state money has to go to those schools because of our adequacy funding formula. And so that was it was a budgetary argument that kind of came from conservatives. Um, but uh, uh, you know, the senators here are making more of a humanitarian argument and saying that six to 7,000 kids uh, may be skipping meals because they're too expensive or may be able to have some um, help uh, if, if they could be automatically enrolled. One last thing I'll say before we run out of time on this is that one reason this is timely is because during the pandemic, the government, the U.S. government um, suspended the need to apply for free and reduced price lunch. If you're a parent, you, you know this already. Everybody's lunch in public school was free. And they did this so that they would kind of reduce some of the uh, um, big food inequities that were coming out because of the pandemic and because people were remote. That program ended this year. So this year, this school year is the first year that a lot of parents have to to do it in two years. And for some parents who are new to the school district, it may be the first time they've ever had to apply for free reduced price lunches. That's an application. It's not that hard, but it is something that can be a barrier. So the reason that this came up last week is the senators were saying, this is something we could fix. We could get 7,000 kids automatically on this if we just use the Medicaid numbers that we already have. And then these parents may, 
you know, may not, um, who may not be either paying attention or uh, who may not have the time uh, to, to commit to it or just, you know, may not know about it, um, that they, they, their kids would still get this benefit. So there is a timely thing where schools, I've talked to a lot of school administrators, they are worried that parents aren't going to sign up um, or not as many as are going to sign up as could sign up because they're not used to it because of the pandemic era free lunches that has ended. So yeah, it's a, it's a scary looking government form too. I'd, I'd imagine many parents are concerned about filling that out, but please do fill it out. I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if next year we see a bit of a bump up again when they've realized the mistake parents realize the mistake they made by not filing it this year. It's very unfortunate. Hopefully we can, it'll be interesting to see in this next session if it ends up being brought back to the table. Reporter Ethan DeWitt of the New Hampshire Bulletin. Thanks so much for joining me. Glad to be on. NewHampshireBulletin.com to get more from them, including this article will be up. One of the first, one of the articles will be up today. <laughs> the other one will be up early next week. I'll be, I'll try and remember to share it on uh, WKXL's uh, Twitter feed. If not, uh, check out my personal one, New England Take. I'll probably reshare it over there. This is WKXL in the morning. I'm your host, AJ Kirsted. We'll be right back after this.